This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have a banquet of guests on the program today from other states, and we've got one on the line right now leading off, and he is Terry Madonna, and he is a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University in near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Let me put it that way. In southeastern Pennsylvania, that's where Millersville is. Welcome to the Political Insider, Terry Madonna. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, Pennsylvania and Michigan have something in common, maybe quite a few things in common, but uh, (laughs) one thing that we want to talk about today is we've got a Democratic governor in Michigan, and you do in Pennsylvania, and we have got both chambers of the legislature controlled by Republicans, the opposite party. And I'd just like to ask you, in Pennsylvania, you've got Democratic Governor Tom Wolf. I think at this point he's term limited at the end of next year, can't run again. Correct. Uh, Correct. But he's been working with the Republican legislature maybe for his entire tenure. You can clear that up for us. No, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Well, how has that worked out? Well, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But uh, <laughs> over overall, I mean, they, they've worked out some things that we can talk about, but they've had some huge, huge differences. And here's the way I like to think about this. And I'm using conservative and, liter- and liberal descriptively, not pejoratively. We have the most conservative legislature in modern history, controlled by the Republicans, both the House and the Senate. And we have a liberal governor in Tom Wolf. And they've worked out, for example, they did a $40 billion budget uh, about a week or so ago. And the Tom Wolf signed on to the budget that largely was produced by the Republicans in the state legislature. And so it's not as though they've, done, they've not uh, been able to work out some things, but they've had a couple of huge differences. I mean, not minor differences, but huge differences. And I'll, just give, I'll give you one very quickly. Uh, after the pandemic hit, Governor Wolf issued a disaster declaration for 90 days, literally shut down the economy of the state. And after the 90 days, he did another 90 days and then another 90 days and then another 90 days <laughs> until we're talking about shutting the state of Pennsylvania down for all practical purposes, economically and, and socially as well. And so after about a year uh, after. So he did the 90 days for a little more than a year. And he did this without going to the state legislature and getting their input or asking them to agree to the specifics of the disaster declaration. And so here's what the Republicans did in response. Because because if they tried to limit his authority in a form of a bill, it would require his signature. And obviously he wouldn't have signed it. And secondly, they don't have the votes to override a veto. So they literally amended the Constitution of the state of Pennsylvania 
And when it came up for a vote before the electorate to amend the Constitution in Pennsylvania, you have to have an amendment go through two consecutive sessions of the state legislature and then approved by the voters. But listen to this. What they did was to say that the legislature at any time, at any time, can walk back, modify, or eliminate a governor's emergency declaration. Secondly, this 90 days is gone. The governor only gets 21 days to use an emergency declaration, and then it can't be continued without the legislature's consent. And that went to the voters. That went to the voters of the state, and they approved it something like with 53% of the vote. It wasn't 65 or 70%. But they did get an amendment added to the Constitution. And, by the way, on the 28th of, of June, uh, Governor Wolf ended the emergency declaration. The state is, for the most part, whatever normal means under these circumstances. I'll, I'll let it go at that. Well, it sounds like if they have to do it twice, there's going to have to be another vote of the people, isn't there? Well, if, if they would have to, yeah, no, no. Here, let's say Governor Wolf did then use a 21-day declaration. That's expired. In order, If he wants to do an emergency declaration, he can do it for 21 days, not 90, and it can't be continued without the legislature's approval. So the voters only get to vote on, in this sense, constitutional amendments, not on, not on you know, the normal legislation that uh, the General Assembly in our state would go through, as well as obviously in other states. And the governor also has issued a number of vetoes of important and controversial uh, aspects, if you will, uh, laws that the Republicans in the legislature wanted to put into effect. So this is law now. I mean, this uh, thing that the people approved 53 percent in favor. I mean, it's set now. There there doesn't have to be another vote of the people on this at all. No, no vote. No vote. That's correct. No vote of the people. Okay. well, absolutely. uh, uh, This budget, uh, you say 40 billion dollars. I mean, was a lot of that, you know, relief money that came from Washington Um, and how did that go? I mean, I can imagine a conservative Republican legislature wouldn't have sent Tom Wolf as much money as he wanted, right? Well, let's start. You are absolutely right. Uh, we got $7 million, billion dollars, I should say, from the federal government as part of the uh, COVID-19 relief money. And here's the point. The $40 billion includes the $7 billion, but guess what? the legislature did and the governor agreed they held out five billion dollars five billion they put two billion uh in addition into what we call the rainy day fund here that's in case there's an emergency and you know the state has to spend money and a lot of people were surprised about the five billion that governor wolf would agree to it uh, because of you know certain unmet needs that the state has but the republicans argument here was Down the road, we may need that money. We may need that money in subsequent budgets because the last thing we want to do is raise taxes. No increase in the state sales tax, no increase in the state income tax. And so uh, a lot of analysts, me included, I was surprised that they held out $5 billion. I thought they might 
you know, use it for a whole variety of things. But in the current budget, which the governor signed, state budget, they did increase education spending, which had been, uh, I'll put it this way, lacking uh, over the last several years. I'm talking about public <laughs> education in the state, elementary, secondary schools, and I'm also talking about the public higher education system, the publicly owned universities in the state. It's amazing how similar what has yeah. happened in Pennsylvania is to what's been going on in Michigan. I mean, a big struggle between the legislature and the governor over the governor's unilateral mandates that she was issuing, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, right? Uh, without legislative input. Uh, I won't go into all the details for our listeners. They're familiar with them here. How about the Constitution and the statutes in place before the vote of the people? I mean, did it seem to give Wolf all the power that he was exercising until oh, yeah. there yeah. was this referendum, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, historically, governors in Pennsylvania and many other states use executive orders to, as you know, to conduct the business. And he certainly didn't do anything unconstitutional. At least in theory, the Republicans argued that they should have gone. He should have gone through the legislature. Yeah. Well, listen. I would love to talk to you more. And obviously, big election coming up next year after the census and reapportionment, redistricting to see whether the Republicans still control the legislature in Pennsylvania. Um, who's going to be the next governor and so forth? Thank you, Terry Madonna who is a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University, for being our guest. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. As promised, we have returned, and we have another great guest on the line with us, and he is Professor J.M. Bitzer. He goes by Michael, Mike Bitzer, and he is a professor of politics and history at Catawba College in, I believe, Salisbury, North Carolina. Is that correct, Professor Mike Bitzer? Well, we pronounce it Salisbury down here in the South, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I <laughs> Good got to be it. with you, Bill. All right. Okay. Salisbury. I stand corrected. Um, look, uh, North Carolina and Michigan have something in common, maybe more than that, but at least we have, when it comes to politics, we each have a Democratic governor. Uh, we mm-hmm. have uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. You have Roy Cooper, a Democrat in North Carolina, and we have a legislator legislature, both chambers of which are controlled by Republicans, the opposite party from our governor. You do, too, in North Carolina. And I just want to ask you, Professor Bitzer, how has that worked out? (laughs) (laughs) Probably about the same as it has been working out in Michigan. Uh, I will not pretend to be the expert on Michigan politics. You guessed correctly. uh, You guessed correctly. it, It it has been divided and polarized government. I mean, typically when political scientists speak about divided government, you know, they mention the kind of dynamic you describe. But North Carolina has become very polarized. The intensity of partisanship has been driven even further. And when Roy Cooper won in 2016, 
defeating the then-Republican incumbent governor, Pat McCrory. He only won by 10,000 votes. And that set up a dynamic during the transition of the legislature, which at that time had supermajority status and numbers, to basically pull a lot of power from the governor's office back to the legislature. And one of the prime examples that in the news right now, five years later, is the Nicole Hannah-Jones controversy particularly relating to the legislature appointing individuals to oversee the UNC system and board of trustees. Yeah, this professor, what, was denied tenure? Is that it? Well, they never voted on her tenure package. Uh, it, it was There were questions raised by the trustees and by other um, individuals and they basically put a hold on her uh, tenure application, offered her a five-year contract instead, and that had broken every precedent of the night chairs coming into the UNC system with tenure. Okay, well, did the Republicans lose their veto-proof majority in the election maybe, what, 2018, 2020, so that now they can't override vetoes anymore or not? Correct. Correct. They had redrawn the district maps in 2011 to basically advantage themselves with those supermajority veto override numbers. And through a series of court cases ultimately decided by a state court decision, they had to redraw them based on the constitutional provision of free and fair elections in this state. They therefore lost their majority, supermajority status, but they continue to retain their majority status in both chambers. Has that come into play with the effort to fight uh, COVID-19 in North Carolina, where the governor is able to do things with unilateral mandates without input from the legislature, and they push back and say, we've got to be included? Or is the governor kind of hamstrung uh, by legislative power, inhibiting his ability to exercise his full power? Yeah, we are a legislative supremacy state that goes back to colonial era dynamics. But the governor has the ability to deal with public health issues, and he has been able to issue executive orders that while the legislature has been very uh, much against them doing uh, him doing so, they don't have the power necessarily to override those. There has been legislation to try and curtail that. The governor has vetoed it. So, you know, the dynamic is kind of playing itself out between the two. The biggest battle, honestly, has been over the state budget. We have not had a state budget now for going on two years. Yes, the state government continues to operate, but on a budget that was passed nearly three years ago now. So there, there is continued controversy and battles between the two branches of government. That's really interesting. You've had essentially what is called a continuation budget for three years. and you have A, a CR going on, yes. Wow. And so even now, are they dickering over that, or is the legislature out of session in North Carolina? And when might this ever be resolved? Yeah, they're they're debating the this year's new budget uh, if it gets approved right now. We are in what is called the long session, 
So this session will go for several more months. Next year is an election year. Our legislators serve two-year terms, so it will be a short session year. But the rhetoric has been very much dampened between the two branches. Uh, There's a lot of conflict going on between the branches, between the Senate and between the House. They're trying to work out their resolution to presenting the budget to the governor. There are some controversial pieces within that budget. It is very much a policy document. And I would not be surprised if Governor Cooper decides to veto the budget yet again and we continue in this kind of stalemate politics. What about COVID-19 relief money that has come from Washington, as you know, in waves Mm -hmm. over the last year? I mean, that's a lot of extra money. I mean, here in Michigan, it's made a huge difference in terms of our finances. A year ago, we thought we were in real trouble at the start of the pandemic. Uh, We were going to lose so much uh, state revenue. And now, a year later, we're flush with cash. What about North Carolina? It's the same dynamic here, and I think that may be one aspect, if that's a separate component, that possibly could garner both branches of government uh, unifying behind it. One of the big discussions is about broadband Internet service to rural communities. North Carolina, probably much like Michigan, is divided very intensely urban versus rural dynamics. And the rural communities have been hurting through COVID, you know, particularly with issues of students having to go online. Well, families may not have that kind of speed and capability of Internet service. And so I think that that might be one of the positive aspects coming out of it. But we're just going to have to wait and see. So is Governor Cooper able to run again for another term next year, what, what's going to happen going forward? You've got the census and redistricting again in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That could have an impact on the composition of the legislature. What do you think? Yeah, so Governor Cooper was actually reelected last year. And so it's going to be interesting to see in four years or three years now what happens with a new set of candidates for an open seat. But redistricting will have a major influence for the legislature. Wow. Well, we could keep going on this. Sounds like you've got a lot of very similar problems and issues in North Carolina, what we're experiencing here in Michigan. But you've done a great job of explaining it. Professor Michael Bitzer of Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, (laughs) professor of politics and history. Thank you, Professor Bitzer. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and fortunately, we have on the line with us Laura Cullen Glasscock, and she is editor and publisher of the Kentucky Gazette in Kentucky. Welcome to the Political Insider, Laura Cullen Glasscock. Thank you for having me, Bill. Kentucky and Michigan have at least uh, one thing in common when it comes to politics, and that is a configuration of a Democratic governor, and a Republican-controlled legislature. Uh, You have Andy Bashir, a Democratic governor. He's the son of a former Democratic governor, Steve Bashir. And uh, Republicans otherwise are kind of running the railroad down there in Kentucky. And 
I just want to ask you, how has it gotten uh, between Andy Bashir and the Republican-controlled legislature? How are they getting along? How are they doing business? Well, that's a good question. So for the on, on broad topics, they seem to be getting along okay. Um, the Republicans here don't seem to be as rabid yet as we're seeing some um, Republican caucuses in other states. Um, and as an example of that, I'll, I'll point to the omnibus election reform bill that passed during the legislative session <clears throat> earlier this year. Our Republican Secretary of State, Michael Adams, worked with Governor Bashir's office to draft that legislation. And national news outlets even pointed to Kentucky as being the only red state that actually expanded voting rights. Um, this past year. So that's that's something that that uh, points to working together. Um, I think one thing that makes Kentucky a little bit different is the slow road to control that the Republicans took. Um, it's only been since 2016 that they've controlled the House. So they took control of the state Senate in 2000. But um, it's, you know, it's been a little slower. So the, the control is still a little new. They do have super majorities and um, veto proof majorities. And so they do know that they they are in control. Well, has that resulted in attempts by the legislature to override any Bashir vetoes? And by the way, how has he exercised his veto power? Has he taken advantage of it or not? Oh, yes, absolutely. They're trying to to. squelch his power. We call it the anti-Andy legislation that just went all over the legislature. Um, There were bills that took power from him um, from appointing members to boards and commissions. There were offices that were moved out of the governor's office and into, for example, the Department of Agriculture. Um, His uh, executive orders, the emergency executive orders he put in place for covid withstood court challenges through November when our state Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the governor was within his rights to issue these emergency orders, emergency executive orders. But the lawmakers came back over the winter and changed the law. So now there are sunset provisions. Um, The the, uh, executive orders that shut down schools or houses of worship have to expire within 30 days. You know, that kind of stuff that that lawmakers weren't pleased with the way the court interpreted the law at the time. So they changed it. So in other words, uh, what the Supreme Court ruled on was not really constitutional powers that the governor supposedly had. It was on statutory powers. And the legislature simply went back and changed the law. And then maybe he vetoed the bills, but they overrode him. That's right. Oh, yeah, he absolutely. Yes, you're right. And he did veto the bills. Governor Bashir vetoed the bills and they overrode those. Wow. Absolutely. Well, what about Mm COVID-19 relief money from Washington that's come into the state? I mean, that has to have helped you out financially in state government, certainly has here in Michigan. It has. That's right. And there are um, plans for spending that money. The um, lawmakers, though, the Republicans held off on appropriating some of that money during the session. They wanted to come back and have more control over how that money was spent rather than letting the executive branch spend that money. So there's still some, some conversations going on with, with how that money is going to be spent. Very similar to here in Michigan. Um, Is Mm -hmm. the legislature Mm -hmm. in session right now in Kentucky? Mm -hmm. 
No, it's not. They adjourned in March. Our legislature meets um, for 30 days in odd-numbered years, and then they have to constitutionally adjourn by mid-March. And in even-numbered years, which is when they take up the state budget, we have a biennial budget, they meet for 60 days. So they're pretty hampered by, you know, their ability to get things done. But I'll tell you this, Bill, that that is a strategy that lawmakers use, too. Um, you mentioned the Republican caucus, and there are some fissures, you know, cracking through there, like we're seeing in other Republican caucuses. Our uh, General Assembly's leadership is still pretty moderate, and they're, I think, allowing some um, maybe more right-leaning bills to get some attention, but not get too far, right? And so, for an example, I'll give you, uh, there's a, a bill that a former state trooper filed that would basically protect the identity of anyone who's a police officer, former police officer, jailer. So you couldn't even get basic directory information like name, address, phone number for these folks. Um, that passed late in the session. The governor vetoed it, but there wasn't enough time for lawmakers to override that veto, right? So they let that play out knowing they didn't have time to come back and veto. Wow. That... I, shouldn't say they, I, I shouldn't say they knew. That's, my, that's how I think it's being handled <laughs> from, what, from what, you know, people I talk to who, who understand some of that strategy. Yeah, right? I, I think you're probably right. Uh, you've been at this for a while, and you know hmm. your way around the barn. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, going forward, you have kind of odd year elections, don't you, for That's governor? Right. And and so mm-hmm. Andy Bashir, he's been in office how long now? He was elected in 2019. And then so he's up for reelection in 2023. And so I'm thinking the 20 next year session, legislative session 2022, we'll have more anti-Andy legislation that'll be designed to hamper his reelection bid going forward. And I want to say, too, that um, Bashir did not win by a large margin. And I know it's a trope to say the other guy lost so that you won. But in this case, I think our former governor, Matt Bevin, really did lose the election. All the other constitutional officers in Kentucky are Republicans. Matt Bevin had an abrasive personality and uh, currently is under federal investigation for potential quid pro quo arrangement between a fundraiser and a gubernatorial pardon. So, you know, it it wasn't the best circumstance for Bashir to win. Yeah, I remember that. I should say, actually, I should say it was, it was the best circumstance for him to win. (laughs) It was not for Bevin, but you know, because every, the Republicans swept everything, everything. Yeah. Andy Bashir maybe is a lucky man to be governor if he considers himself lucky facing a veto proof uh, majority mm-hmm. Republican le- uh, legislature it must be tough on him. And by the way, there's yeah. going to be redistricting after the census, mm-hmm. obviously, next year. But you don't think that's probably going to change the situation with the legislature? There will probably still be veto proof Republican majorities. I Yeah, I think so. Um, President Trump is still popular in rural parts of the state. Um, not so much in urban areas as in other places. Uh, you know, Kentucky's not an outlier in that urban-rural split that we see in other states. Um, Republicans in the urban areas, though, tend to be a little more moderate, a little more 
liberal on some things, right? There are handfuls of them here who support uh, medical marijuana legalization, for example. Um, but Trump is still in rural areas, very popular. Um, but I'll tell you, three words sum up the, the GOP's moderation here, and that is Senator Mitch McConnell. Um, he still is very involved in state politics here. Um, our Secretary of State and um, Attorney General both worked for him at different times in their careers. So we're seeing more of that McConnell um, personality in the state GOP, I think, than the Trump personality, although it's still there. It's still there. And, and to your point about redistricting, I think you're, you're right that it won't change. It's just going to be a matter of which Republicans, uh, which faction of Republicans take office. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Laura Cullen Glasscock, you've done a great job of explaining the situation in Kentucky, which is very much like Michigan, but with some differences. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised right. by a couple of things you said. Thank you, Laura Cullen okay. Glasscock, for being our guest. Thank you, Bill, for having me. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Barry Burden. He is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Thanks for being our guest, Barry Burden. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Wisconsin and Michigan have a lot in common when it comes to politics, and I say a lot, meaning that you've got a Democratic governor in Wisconsin, Tony Evers, and you've got a Republican-controlled legislature, although I don't think it's veto-proof majorities. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Here in Michigan, we got the same thing, a Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and we got a Republican-controlled legislature, but not veto-proof majorities. And I just want to ask you, Professor Burden, um, how is it working out between your governor and the legislature over the last couple of years uh, and going forward? And what just happened yesterday, I think there was a budget involved. Yeah, I think the big headline is that it's not working out well. There's really been a (laughs) tremendous amount of hostility between the Democratic governor and especially Republican leaders in the legislature. They got off on a bad foot immediately after Evers was elected in November 2018. There was a lame duck legislative session that November and December, so before he took office, when the legislature pushed through a number of restrictions on his powers, and they were signed into law by the outgoing Republican governor, Scott Walker, and were the subject of lawsuits. So that immediately sort of tainted the relationship. And it has been, I would say, difficult and and not constructive for most of the last two years. Um, The budget is an exception. We can talk about that in a moment. But mostly it's been Governor Evers proposing things to the legislature and the legislature ignoring those proposals and acting in ways they prefer. He has asked them to convene special sessions to deal with covid to deal with the unemployment insurance program, to deal with gun violence and other things. And they've rejected all of those. They've just gaveled in and gaveled out in a matter of seconds. And there's really been no communication and very little cooperation between the branches. What about vetoes? Has the governor vetoed uh, 
a number of bills that the legislature sent him, and have there been attempts by the legislature to override his vetoes? Have any of them been successful? Well, there's sort of a contrast of two periods. There's the period up through the end of the height of the pandemic, and then there's been the period of what's happened in the last few months. For the first two years of Governor Evers' time in office, he didn't veto much legislation because the legislature didn't send him much to veto. It was just very unproductive as legislatures go in Wisconsin, especially in 2020, during the presidential election, during the height of the pandemic, the legislature produced almost no legislation. There was just really nothing passed dealing with COVID or the difficulties of the election or the budget or anything else. And so Evers had nothing to respond to. Uh, now, that has changed in early 2021. The legislature has gotten very active this spring. They've been working on criminal justice, on the budget, on um, tax cuts, environmental regulations, a whole range of things, and have been sending things to his desk every week, it seems. And he's vetoed a fair amount of that, uh, but signed some of those measures into law. Uh, there are more coming also on election rules and other things. Uh, nothing has been overridden, and as you say, the Republicans don't have large enough majorities to do that, so I don't expect that will happen. What about COVID-19 relief money that has come in waves from Washington, as you know, over the last year, which has been a boon to the state treasury here in Michigan? How about Wisconsin? Yeah, it's had two effects here. One is it's created more hostility between the branches because the governor has a lot of authority to direct those funds unilaterally. And the legislature has tried to get its hands on it to have some influence over how it's distributed. Lawsuits have been filed to try to curtail the governor's powers, and those have come up short. And so it's really still in the governor's hands, and that's, that's frustrated legislative leaders. The other way it's affected the relationship is that just a few weeks ago, it was announced there was a surprising amount of revenue coming into Wisconsin from the COVID relief packages in Washington. And that was surprising just as the budget was being finalized because it meant there was going to be a, a big surplus. And Republicans jumped on that opportunity and wrote a budget that included really historic cuts to taxes, income taxes and property taxes. And that framed the budget discussion and put Governor Evers in a difficult position this week. He ended up signing the budget with a limited number of line item vetoes, but basically taking the package Republicans proposed with the tax cuts. Uh, he gets to say he, he supports the tax cuts as well, even though they were not in his original budget plan. Though, to be fair, that plan was developed before the new uh, federal funds were announced. So it, it has complicated things and really turned the budget from a, maybe a, a spending package to one that was mostly about tax relief. Yeah, I think wasn't there like an overall $2 billion tax cut that he signed that the Republican legislature sent him? Yes, it, it might be the largest tax cut in state history. It cuts income tax rates for most people, more so for high income earners. It will reduce property taxes. There's sort of a, a bit of a shell game going on where money is moved around from education funding to property taxes because those are related. But the bottom line will be less in the way of property taxes for most homeowners. Um, so I, I think taxpayers in Wisconsin will really feel this. And, you know, the, the irony here is even though Evers was sort of boxed into this position, he felt obligated to sign the budget. 
it probably helped him in his reelection effort next year because he'll be able to campaign saying he signed tax cuts into law and it will be difficult to paint him as a tax and spend liberal. Conversely, I think there was less money for K-12 public education in the budget that Governor Evers signed than he originally requested. Is that correct? Uh, yes, far less. Uh, his background is in education. He was originally a teacher. He was the superintendent at several public schools and then the state superintendent of public instruction before running for governor in 2018. So he's very invested in the K-12 and higher ed systems and had proposed tens of millions of dollars in funding. And the legislature essentially did none of that. There were a few million dollars for specialized programs, but essentially funding for the university is and for K-12 is pretty close to flat, aside from the one-time influx of COVID relief funds. We've just had a census, and I'm wondering about redistricting in Wisconsin. Is that likely to change the composition of the legislature going forward after the election of 2022? Will the Republicans still, do you think, probably have majorities in both chambers? And if so, how big? That's a really important question. Uh, the legislature has been locked in as Republican majorities for the last 10 years, despite the fact that Democrats have sometimes won statewide races. They've really made no gains in the legislature, and that's because of the kinds of districts that got drawn 10 years ago by Republicans. This time will be different. Uh, I think everyone's expecting that the governor and the legislature will not agree on the kinds of maps that ought to be produced. There's no Citizens Commission here the way there is in Michigan, so the legislature starts that process and they need the governor's signature. It will probably end up in court. There are already battles underway, <laughs> legal proceedings to try to steer the litigation to one court or another. Republicans would like it to be at a state Supreme Court, Democrats probably by federal courts. Uh, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty as to what those districts will look like. They're almost certainly going to be less favorable to Republicans than the current districts, but it may not be enough to make the at least the legislature competitive for Democrats in if they can even get it done by 2022. What are the margins for Republicans in the House and Senate in Wisconsin? Uh, they're pretty sizable for a state that is politically competitive, a, a really a purple state. Uh, it's surprising how well Republicans have done there. Just to remind your listeners, we, in Wisconsin has one Republican senator, one Democratic senator. Joe Biden won the state narrowly, as he did in Michigan. But Donald Trump had won the state four years ago. We had a Republican governor recently. Now we have a Democratic governor. So this is a state that's right on the knife's edge. Uh, and yet the legislature doesn't reflect that. Uh, in the state assembly, which is our lower house, there are 99 seats. And Republicans have consistently had between 65 and 69 of the seats, so about two-thirds wow. of the seats are held by Republicans, despite the fact that it's a 50-50 state. State Senate is not quite as imbalanced, but the Republicans do have a, a majority of several seats, which is a lot in a chamber that only has 33 members. So that, that's just been impervious to changes in voter preferences, even though statewide elections have swung back and forth over the last 10 years. You've got a big U.S. Senate race coming up next year, incumbent Republican Ron Johnson running for re-election. Uh, do the Democrats have a chance to win that? They do. Uh, Johnson's in a precarious place because he's, the, I think, the only Republican running for re-election in a state that Donald Trump lost, and he's a controversial figure. So Democrats uh, have a big field and are chomping up the bit to have a chance to run against him. 
going to be exciting times in Wisconsin in 2022, as always. We are very fortunate to have had Barry Burton, Professor of Political Science, University of Wisconsin-Madison, as our guest. Thank you, Barry Burton. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. We'll be back next week with more.